Hey there, everybody. I am Ted King, your host here on King of the Ride podcast. Whether this is your first time listening or you're a seasoned KOTR listener, I want to personally welcome you to the show. Today brings us to episode number 27. It also marks a first for King of the Ride. This is the first time we're doing a multi-episode series. This is part two of that first ever. Our last show was the precursor to the James Bay Descent. Admittedly, it was a quick one since at the time our outdoorsy team of four was trying to just get out the door, get deep into the Adirondacks to test our gear, ride our fat cads, make sure those 45 North pogies and Wolfgar boots were up to snuff during a weekend of bike practice. I'm typically not one to use that term, bike practice, but that is exactly what the weekend was all about. That is, practice riding fat bikes weighed down with 100 pounds of gear in extremely cold conditions for multiple days in a row. That bike practice from a few weeks ago served as the prologue in part one to the James Bay Descent. Now, you should definitely consider that last show light listening. I still encourage you to hit rewind and take a listen if you haven't heard it already. But here on today's episode 27, James Bay Descent Part 2, this is where the action goes down. Folks, we made it. Only slightly worse for wear, I had a decent nip of frostbite on my nose. Now, it, it merely turned a few shades of brown, thankfully not charcoal black as it had been previously suggested. I thank you for those questions and comments that have come in asking about my fair schnoz. I also somehow gave myself a niggle of a wrist injury. Buck had a bit of tendonitis of the knee. Eric had some chronic upper leg pain by the end. There is rumor of some broken ribs from no fewer than a dozen crashes tallied on the course of the trip by the entire Peloton. Meanwhile, Ryan is Ryan. He's unfazed by everything, so he's just fine. But despite all those little injuries, folks, we made it. We survived the first ever expedition of its kind, the James Bay Descent. I mentioned it in the last episode. Part of me was holding out on releasing anything about the trip as a precursor just in case we didn't make it back. Now look, two of our four-person quartet are parents. All four of us are married. We all have families who love us and want to see us come home safe and sound. We, the same, want to come home and see our families safe and sound. Trust me, we all had every intention of surviving and making it home. However, a trip of this nature is so outside of my comfort zone that it seems wild and crazy and sleeping in polar bear country in negative 40 degree weather just seems, I don't know, dangerous. Or is it? We tackle that exact question as part of today's show. Where does something like the James Bay Descent fit into the realm of normal for our team? Me? It's crazy. These guys, I guess you just have to wait and find out. I cannot encourage you enough to go grab a map and take a look at the places that we're going to talk about to give a sense of where we are. So quick, hit pause right now as you fire up Google Maps or get out your world gazetteer. Okay, we're back. I, uh, I embarrassingly butcher the pronunciations early in today's show. First, zoom into Ontario. That is an eastern province in Canada. Attawapiskat is the start town. Agamaski Island is that sole island you see in the James Bay. We then travel down to Moosonee, which is effectively the halfway point of the ride, ultimately ending up in the town which Buck was born, Smooth Rock Falls. Here's a bit of reference to the scale of it all. 
It took me the better part of three days to drive from my home, already in northern Vermont, heck, I'm less than an hour from the Canadian border, to our starting point. That's the equivalent of driving from the East Coast all the way across to the Rockies. But set your sail due north. That is where we were. Outside of a wild adventure, please don't forget that the big motivating factor of this ride was to raise funds for the Timmins Native Friendship Center, Moosonee Office, We've smashed through our goal of $5,000. We are zeroing in on $8,000 raised for the Timmins Native Friendship Center. The GoFundMe link is in the show notes. Check that out. Check out this very worthy cause for why we rode. Next, a big thanks goes out to Strava for supporting this episode. I imagine that there's a good chance you either ride a bike, you run, or you have at least somehow tangentially heard of Strava. Even if you don't have an account, I encourage you to explore their new podcast, Athletes Unfiltered. Just recently released, and already with three really interesting episodes, Athletes Unfiltered offers athletes like you inspiring stories to get motivated for your next ride, your next run, your next ski, your next adventure, or to just get out the door. Folks, I also thank you so much for your comments, your questions, your suggestions. Keep them coming in. Hit subscribe or tell a friend about King of the Ride to keep this podcast growing. Next up, ladies and gentlemen, the James Bay Descent Part 2. going to start with uh, Buck Miller here on the left. You took the atypical path to retirement. What did you do when you stopped racing bikes? I pretty well uh, met a beautiful girl and moved back north. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Started banging nails. Way north. Yeah. Where'd Mo- you go? Moved to the James Bay Coast town of Moosonee. Okay. Little town, little remote town where there's no road in or no road out. Just a train, just a train line. You take a train to get there only. And of all the places you could go, you go to Boulder, Colorado or sunny yeah. San Francisco or. No, I, I love the North. I, I don't want to be in those places. Mm-hmm. I mean, you definitely don't in, in Moosonee and those areas, you don't get uh, awesome mountain biking, awesome road riding, but I wasn't interested in that. You hung it up. You hung up the bike. You really hung it up. Yeah, I really hung it up. I I, I always loved the sport. I always knew I'd get back to it eventually. Mm -hmm. And in that town, I was still riding a bike commuting, and that was fun for me. There's only, you know, 10 kilometers of dirt road, but I loved it. Even just getting on a bike at all, I loved. So I'd ride the bike to work every day, ride to hockey in the winter with my hockey bag on my back. I'd ride, but I was there more for the outdoors, the hunting, the fishing, canoe tripping. And is that where you really started to get a taste of wild northern Ontario outdoors? Not I know really. You've had it in your blood for a long time. Yeah, I was raised. I was raised like a hundred miles south of that town. Yeah, uh, where that all started. So then, you know, born and raised in northern Ontario, and then through high school, moved to southern Ontario, learned how to ride bikes, went to all over the states, all over Europe, racing bikes for ten years, uh, and then I was so withdrawn and missing the northern lifestyle of my youth. Uh, that that's why I was like, yeah, let's just go north. And in the north, there's tons of work, like tons of work. You, you know, if you have work ethic, you go to work and get paid well. And so it was like no brainer for my wife and I. Um, and given that there's a the you know large indigenous population there, how well were you the gringo received? 
I was kind of like, I was received with a little bit more cred than your normal uh, Mstagushu, which is white guy in Cree, uh, because uh, I, I was from Northern Ontario and, and I had family roots in places that these, a lot of the people in this community would trap themselves after my family left. Uh, but in general, it wasn't like I was still the white guy in town. Um, so, you know, there's, you see a little bit of. Plus you got a super sweet beard. Yeah, I got that a gives big, you some cred. Big yellow blondie, yeah, Yukon Cornelius beard. And you mentioned it; you've had a long family lineage up there. I mean, your father worked, yeah, uh, close the, to, close by. Yep, at to bid to be. Did I say L- that right? Like you Americans would say, Labidibi. Yep, like the the junior stage race that everyone goes to in Quebec, but Canadians say Abitibi. Uh-huh. Yeah, the Abitibi Canyon Dam, which was on our route. My dad worked and ran that place for quite a while. Beauty. So. Speaking of the route specifically, Moosonee is where you lived for five years. Smooth Rock Falls is where you were born and not quite raised, but born quite yep. literally in Smooth Rock Falls. So that is the midpoint and the, the ending point of the trip. We started in, I always say Attawapiskat. That's correct. I always say the other one, Agamiski. Oh, uh, right. Agamiski. Gosh darn it. it. If you read it to, look at, to the spelling, it's Agamiski, but... Everyone locally says Agamiski. Right on. So, in a way, this was the tour of Buck's yeah. formidable years. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, very good. That's how we get the route. Um, let's move on to former professional mountain biker, arborist, alpine adventurist, photographer, ladies and gentlemen, Eric Batty. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Batman. Bats. What other nicknames you got? Because we got some good nicknames throughout the trip. I, uh, I'm going to keep those nicknames to myself. You, guys, right. you guys haven't stumbled on them yet. I'm gonna, we're going to keep those under the carpet. Far out. Uh, the entire group has, has current or former professional cycling in, in them. Uh, tell me about your, your professional bike racing days. Or not professional. How'd you get into the sport? Yeah, well, I'll start with how I got into it. So... Um, when I was a little kid, I, my neighbor, um, Rob Simpson used to be a pretty good mountain biker. He was a provincial, like he was top 10 in our provincial uh, races. And I was still, I was like seven, eight years old. Um, and I grew up on a farm and I grew up working on that farm and I knew that I wanted to buy a mountain bike and be like my neighbor. Cause it was really, really, really cool. And so for about a year and a half, two years, I worked all summer, spring, fall, making, uh, a dollar an hour and okay. yeah, it was, it was a good wage. It was either a dollar an hour or no dollars an hour. So I chose the <laughs> dollar an hour. Um, and then I bought my first bike when I was just about 10 years old. So I bought an old Bianchi in 1993 and I started racing mountain bikes on and off then. And through, through my younger years, through 93 to like 98, I did it purely just for fun. And then in 1998, we got a good local team going and some of my friends got into the sport and we all got fairly competitive. And for our sport in our area, we kind of drove the the level up a little bit. Um, And so I started racing competitively in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, And through through the sport of cycling, I was also introduced and drawn into a whole bunch of other stuff like uh, rock climbing, ice climbing, alpine climbing, mountaineering and whatnot, skiing, snowboarding, you know, pretty much everything outside. Um, And I... I had a really hard time just racing my bike and just mm. focusing on racing my bike. I was always 
you know, we go out west to race these mountains in Whistler or Canmore or down in the States or Park City or somewhere like really cool. And that's awesome. We're there racing our bikes. I was also really drawn to everything else around there, you know? So, it, you know, I get, I get my pre-riding done on the course. And as soon as I was done that, I was like, all right, well, where's the local Craig? I want to go, let's go rock climbing or <laughs> let's go do something different. Right. So I was always very drawn to the, the outdoors. Um, and then, so, yeah, so, you know, moving forward through my career, I raced at a high level, you know, I was usually top 10 in Canada, um, bunch of top tens in, 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 uh, us cups and I don't know, a couple of top 25s and some world cups. So, you know, not bad. Um, but again, because I had a really hard time focusing on just biking, that's probably why it was only ever just not bad. Um, but that was fine. That was just, that was not my path in life. And that cycling introduced me to different places where I could exercise different sports and different parts of, uh, different components of my passions and for me, mm-hmm. um, Anyways, and then I I retired psych, competitive cycling, I think it was about 2010, mm-hmm. 2009, 2010. Um, had a bunch of buddies that were arborists that I used to climb with. They'd always said, you know, you'd be a really, you know, through rock climbing, you'd be a really good arborist. And so, you know, kind of fast forwarding through that, I applied to a bunch of local companies. They all said no. Finally, one company said, yep, we'll hire you. Uh, I got hired with that one company, which was an awesome company met some wicked mentors who I'm still very close with today. Um, and I never really looked back. And so for me, everything I've done up to this point, well, and everybody too, um, but I, you know, I just look at it and I often self-reflect on it. Um, it's a, everything I've done up to this point is accumulation of where I'm at now. Right. And it's a very distinct path that, you know, I like to look back. I like to reflect on, and I like to appreciate that. Um, and for me now being an arborist, it, it encompasses, you know, that, that, that climbing aspect, I get that fulfillment of being, you know, sometimes a hundred, hundred plus feet up a tree, you know, working with ropes and at heights and it's very physical. So I'm taking all those aspects that I really found enjoyment in elsewhere in my life. And I'm now putting it into a trade where I'm making good money doing this. Right. Sure. And so, um, yeah, that was a, that's, that's where I'm at now. I got a young family, um, for the last five years I've taught at the college. So I was, uh, one of the main teachers for the Arborist Apprenticeship Program. And, uh, yeah, I just, I still am an avid cyclist. I'm active in the outdoors and. And how about outside of some terrible selfies that I've taken, largely any good photo or video you've seen has come from, uh, your doing. When does photography enter your, your, your foray? Yeah, photography entered my foray probably later than it should have. Looking back, that's the one thing I was kind of like, man, I've done a real lot of really cool stuff in my life, and I did it with no GPS or no camera, and or other than like a little disposable jobby where I have a shoebox full of or multiple shoeboxes uh, full of of pictures from back in the day. Um, but it was probably after I retired from cycling, I picked up a camera and I I really started to appreciate documenting the stuff I was doing, the places I was at, you know, photographing my friends in nature. And it was just a way to kind of take what I was doing, what I was experiencing, kind of pressing that moment in time where I could share with others. And so that's, that's kind of where that was. And, you know, I used it a little bit, you know, when I was, you know, doing other stuff, I, you know, I still, I, I call myself a part-time photographer. I'm not by no means a full-time, I'm an arborist first and foremost. Um, but it's a big passion of mine is taking pictures. Like I love, love taking pictures. That's awesome. Um, and I'd be remiss to not bring up the startling coincidence that your last name is Batty and you're a mountain biker and you're from Canada. 
And do you have any relation to, is it Emily? Emily Batty? Yeah, that's, that'd be Emily Batty. I think, I think her name's Emily. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so that's my, that's my little sister. And uh, taught, her every, taught her everything I knew. Yeah. Um, she and, got all her, well, I guess you can't get your genes from her. You, yeah, no, she didn't get the genes. She got genes, genes from my parents. We have got very, it. we have very similar, similar <laughs> genes. Right. On. Um, yeah. So we grew up through, we grew up in a cycling family. And so because I started cycling really young, uh, you know, my dad and my mom looked at it as a way for something for all of us kids to do together. Yeah. And, you know, growing up on a farm, we really didn't, when we were just kids, we really didn't do much else than just work. Like we played our local sports and soccer, but up until I was, we we're starting to get competitive with cycling we really didn't do much. We didn't go camping. We didn't really do anything because the farm was, it had us pretty rooted. Sure. And so when we, you know, got more competitive with cycling, they looked at it as a really good opportunity for our family to travel. And so we'd spend summers literally on the road in the motorhome for like two and a half, three months traveling North America, racing all the bike races that we could. And that plays into what I just said a few minutes ago about like seeing all these wicked spots. And I'm like, I got to come back here and here. And here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so on the mental checklist. Yep. Far out. All right. And the third of the trifecta. Another professional athlete. Um, OCR. Obstacle course racer. Do you ever... Is it always racer, racing? What does the R stand for in your mind? OCR. For Ryan. It stands for Ryan. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> we have... We have <laughs> World's toughest mutter six times over, and best yet, world champion in unicycle trials. Please explain that to me. Wow, well, yeah, unicycle trials, it's a pretty obscure mm-hmm. form of cycling, but uh, it's a heck of a lot of fun. I used to, uh, well, I think some people know what trials is, but mm-hmm. for the uninitiated, uh, there's bicycle trials, motorcycle trials, and you basically come up with the most technical hard thing that you could possibly do on a bike and try to do it and he who can do it you know wins and so unicycle trials is just that on one wheel so he would you know jump up onto a handrail and ride across it or go over a picnic table or go over a car or whatever on uh, on a unicycle it's pretty fun and and outside of being in the circus how does one pick up the unicycle in the first place um, yeah, so saw my my buddy's dad was uh trying to learn a unicycle and me and my friend thought it was just ridiculous. Like, what is this guy doing? Mm-hmm. And uh and we were kind of, you know, sitting in the background and then they went to a convention and it turns out you can ride a unicycle up and down mountains and you can do three sixties on it and you can uh grind handrails and when we heard about all these other things you can do other than just ride all these cool tricks, um we all of a sudden thought it wasn't so goofy and wanted to do it. Hopped right in. Um, <laughs> and you were a professional mountain biker as well. Yeah. Yeah. I raced uh, with Eric um, all across Canada at um, several world cup events, um, cross country mountain biking. It was a lot of fun. I started racing when I was about 20 and raced for I think about five years while I was going to school, getting an engineering degree and uh all that good stuff and um yeah i mean i was always kind of like eric doing other stuff and getting pulled in different directions and after that uh started working as an engineer and then did that for a couple years and then got wham bam straight into obstacle course racing right (laughs) which is the next segue i mean how 
How does one stumble on that? I like your very atypical approach to athleticism, but then I'm also making it a profession. So yeah, a, hats off to that. B, carry on. Yeah, so it was crazy. Uh, Eric actually was kind of like in the fall one year said, hey, let's go run this 80-kilometer trail um, in Killarney. It's, you know, this remote wilderness, super rugged hiking trail let's go run it in a day and uh i hadn't really run it much at the time but i said yeah sure sounds great so we did that and it totally destroyed me but then i was like hey this running thing's kind of cool so i started running more and more and then my buddy said but a year later there's this race and if you go do it you could maybe win a atv and i said why not i need an atv (laughs) who doesn't you know who doesn't Um, so I trained for it and it kind of fit my athleticism very well. Um, just kind of agility, uh, endurance, strength, um, mixing it all together, uh, at the same time. So I went and did this race. I won it. I won the ATV. And then from there on, it was kind of like just one thing led to another. It's pretty great. Hot damn. (laughs) Makes total sense. So what I think is very cool about this trip is yes, the four of us have professional cycling in our backgrounds but i think what we've done is laid the foundation for an approachable ride by quite frankly anybody yeah you got to do a little bit of training and yes you have to do an enormous amount of legwork and homework beforehand to figure out what you need to anticipate but it's it's putting an approachable adventure out there on the horizon um Agree or disagree? Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. And I think what's so cool about this adventure is, you know, for Canadians, for Ontarians, it's in our backyard. You don't have to get on a plane and fly to Kuala Lumpur mm-hmm. or anything. Um, you don't even have to pack your bike up. Just put it in the back of your truck and start driving in February. And then, um, you know, we get you get to go up to the Arctic, which is really cool and mm-hmm. really cold. And uh, you get to do a bunch of winter camping. And it's super far out there. It's out of this world. Um, but it's still close to home, which is awesome. There's so many things in our backyard that we don't see because you see people in uh, Nepal or in Mexico or wherever. And you say, I want to go there. But, you know, just down the road is... Real adventure. Real adventure is just down the road. Yeah, just around the corner. So how about, you know, we each bring our strengths and our lesser strengths, weaknesses in my case, to this event. Um, multi-day, what do you even call it? Uh, spending multiple days outside, not in a roofed establishment with running water and heat is something that I'm not accustomed to. I had full faith in this trip because this is something that, uh, is in the three of your wheelhouses. Knowing what we were getting into, is there anything that put you guys on your back foot? Is there anything that, that, you know, took you out of your comfort zone? Um, what was your biggest concern about this trip? Well, I think given the location of where we were, the, the, uh, kind of the obvious concern that was in the back of my mind, and I knew it was a very slim chance that we'd ever run into this, but it was obviously a polar bear. And even though we had, you know, precautionary measures in place with bear bangers and we were carrying a shotgun, that was something that was, you know, when we were still originally planning to go over to a Gamiski Island, it's a slim chance, but there's still a chance, right? In reality, you know, there was probably other risks that we were dealing with that were probably much 
uh, riskier, like the cold or just even drivers on the road and snowy conditions or crashing and the probability of something happening during uh, the actual riding uh, while we're coming down on the road, down the, like, you know, the Weedham Road or, or down from Abitibi Canyon, uh, south down to Smooth Rock Falls with logging trucks. Like those are where something, you know, there's a higher probability of something going wrong. Uh, but that's something you just, you're almost kind of numb to, you're used to it, right? And being in a polar bear and and polar bears environment, you're, you're on their turf, right? So you really have maybe one or two lines of defense before something happens. And we're not, it's not like we live there and we're used to seeing them and dealing with them every day. Right. So that, that wasn't like in the back of my mind anyways, that was definitely the one where I was kind of, kind of, yeah, I really hope I don't see one this mm-hmm. trip. I'm good if I don't. I remember on the first day as we're setting sail towards Gamaski. That's where we had the like the most wide open, expansive view, white in every direction, like not a single tree or anything else. And yeah, I think we all had our uh, periscopes on, looking for any sort of movement on the horizon. Yeah, for sure we did. Anything that moved? That's is that a bear? That, that no, okay, not a bear there. Where is it? Where is it? Ow! It's not a bear. <laughs> it's a chunk of ice. Anybody else? Anybody else? Anything put you on your back foot? Anyone? Or is it, I mean, is it business as usual? Like for me, this was totally, this is the craziest trip that I've done. Oh man, in the past year. So probably in the past three years, five years, 36 years of my life. Like, is this, give me an idea. Is this your, your normal or a little bit out there? I don't know. Every, every aspect of the trip put together is pretty, was pretty, you know, wild. Like I haven't really done much bike packing. I've done a lot of backpacking, but loading everything on my bike was new to me. I didn't know how the bikes would handle all the weight we had in them. I was afraid something was going to break. Um, but with that being said, if you look at every component of what we did, it's all stuff that I have done a lot of. I've ridden my bike a lot of hours. I've slept outside in cold temperatures a lot of times. I've, you know, well, that's kind of it, but <laughs> cooked food and stayed warm and had to problem solve and come up with solutions. So when you look at all the little individual aspects of what we had to deal with, nothing was really that much out of the ordinary. And so um, everything we encountered was uh, we were able to manage it and deal with it and keep going. Buccarino? Yeah, I think uh, kind of kind of agree with Ryan on, on the sense of like, I've, I've done all these things before, but this was, my, this was my first time putting them all into one. So that was a new experience. I, like similar, I didn't know how the bike was going to handle. I, I totally assumed we'd break something very serious with after we saw how the mounting process went and how rough the roads were, but you know, those things didn't happen. And, and the, as far as the polar bears go, <clears throat> truthfully, I brought a gun because to keep you guys, to keep your wives happy, uh, because I have a bit of experience in polar bear country and it wasn't a concern to me. I, it's probability. We, it, it's so, it would be so rare for that to happen, but you'd be crazy not to have a gun anyway. So sure. We'll bring a gun. But um, I think that's why they have flotation devices on airplanes. That, that's right. Yeah, that's true. That's and seatbelts. So uh, otherwise, like, I think you saw a little bit of like the biggest concern was I, I think I was quite susceptible to this. And I saw all of us at some point, maybe not uh, Ryan, because he brought a down suit. Uh, but the three <laughs> of us, you know, exposure. So you get wet, you ride your bike, you get wet all day. You, you know, you could it could be July almost like it's so warm out there when you're riding your bike in 30 below. And then you stop, you got to set up camp for an hour. Well, that takes time, man. And in that time, do you want to sit there and shake and shiver and be on? Un- that's, 
I can't stand that stuff. And I do it all the time. It's a part of like, it's totally normal for me, but I don't like being cold when I don't have to be. You do a good job of not complaining about it because you were the first person I think to get the coldest. Definitely. Which is why you spent 13 hours between the hours of 3 PM and yeah, I spent a lot of time in a sleeping bag in a sleeping bag. Yeah. Uh, but I also didn't have an appetite that day, so maybe something else was wrong, but I was really cold that first night. Sure. Too cold for my comfort level. Well, we also, okay, so backtrack like f- three or four weeks. We spent a handful of days uh, at Ryan's place in the Adirondacks to try to experience these things and, and to go through the paces so that there wouldn't be any hmm, unforeseen surprises. So, yeah, it was the bike packing. It was spending the night at sub-zero temperatures up at the top of uh, Whiteface. White yeah. So... Okay, fair enough. That all makes sense. And it also goes to my point that, yeah, we're trying to create an approachable trip for other people to inspire others. And speaking of inspiring others, we created through, largely through Buck's experience there, the, the fundraising component to raise funds for the Timmins Native Friendship Center. Um, Moosini, Moosini office. office, not to be confused with. We also created a Strava segment, I think. Yes, a 600-kilometer Strava segment. Come uh, on, go beat it, bro. Exactly. I dare you to. I don't think it's going to be beatable because it takes place over the course of six days. That's right. Or eight days. Uh, explain to me the meaning and significance of the Timmins Native Friendship Center Moose Knee Office to you, Buck. So the significance to me is my wife and I, living in the James Bay Coast, have always obviously been very, um, you know, Indigenous uh, issues today are always in the forefront of our mind. My wife works in, in Indigenous child care for, you know, an agency that deals with Indigenous kids only from remote reserves around James and Hudson Bay. So we, she has a degree in Indigenous studies. We, it's always in the forefront of our mind how badly white people have historically screwed the Indigenous person over. Um, so... When I know it, when, when they, I've said this before many times, but when, when their office closed in Huntsville due to mismanagement of funds by one terrible person, um, it had a big effect on the poorest people in the community. And when we found out they opened, it was without a doubt the agency we had to support. Um, they do great work in the community. I have personal friends that work there, uh, and I know them very well, and they're, they, they really care about those they help. Uh, and seven thousand dollars for these people is a ton of money. It's not a. It's not just a. Oh, there's not. It's not every day people are giving them money. They get. They have a shoestring budget in the first place. Uh, so this is just you know cream on top. Brilliant. Well, we smashed through our goal, aimed at five thousand bucks as of this morning, this afternoon. We're we're well over seven. Um, creating more and more waves as we get into the CBC and variety of other news outlets. So hopefully that continues to rise. Um, I'm going to go quickly to some Instagram questions that came in by way of our friends on the internet. We can treat this as rapid fire. Um, favorite go-to meal? I'm going with uh, Three Sisters Stew. Mac and cheese. Yeah, mac and cheese though. Hundo P. Hundo P. Hundo P mac and cheese. So these meals are Boil some water, pour them in a bag. They're absolutely exquisite. So I recommend everybody goes to your local camping store and pick one of those up. Favorite snack? I'm going with uh, untapped uh, waffles. The coffee infused waffles. That was not a sponsor plug. That was legit. No, I swear. I'd say uh, a bacon, Nutella, peanut butter, honey, 
uh, sandwich. That was also not pressured by sponsors. <laughs> I would say mine's a 50-50 split. One would be uh, just the maple syrup gels or maple syrup packets. That I just, I love syrup. Can't I thrive enough. on it. Can't get enough. That is not a plug either. I love it. And yeah, I just can't get enough. And the next one would be uh, Pringles chips. Love Pringles chips. Um, did you pack it in, pack it out for everything? We did not pack it in, pack it out. What didn't we pack out? Oh, poo? Yeah, we're not mountaineers, guys. We get to do it in nature and leave it in nature. Turns to fertilizer, right? Yeah, I mean, we're in the swamp. Um, someone needs to fertilize those trees. I was going to say we're not animals. We are animals. Well, we are animals because that would be silly. Yeah, otherwise, we brought everything out. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I would say no trace camping. What is the biggest surprise of the trip? Raising seven thousand dollars when our goal was five for the Moosey Friendship Center. Mm -hmm. Totally. I think just the size of the landscape that we were traveling in. Uh, for me, the local culture, experiencing that local culture up there, that was something you can't really describe. Sure. I would also say a pair of three hundred dollar pants that Ted bought me. <laughs> Let's that, go. That there. was a big. That was a big surprise. <laughs> All right, can of worms. Let's open that up. Okay, day one, I was frozen cold. Like, a, a terrible night. Because we should also yeah. preface that Buck, who is the most experienced in this part of the world, left the trip having told his wife that he is concerned about how little he is bringing. I said, this is as little as I can bring. I'm, I've brought so little that I'm almost uncomfortable. I was okay. comfortable. Okay. I'm almost. That's how light I packed because I'm, I'm normally a more traditional guy. I'm, I have no alpine experience, so I'm not a weight weenie. I normally bring some pretty warm things. But we only had a certain amount of volume on our bikes, and I have a lefty. I couldn't put a front uh, rack on, so I was I was pretty lean for me. I got really cold one night. As was I, shivering for three hours was yeah. not a cool way. I, I cool shivered way for eight hours, but whatever, Ted. Go your, on. Three, your three is nothing. My my eight was everything. Uh -huh. It was um, negative forty, folks. That's yeah, it was brisk. cold. So, and I also didn't have an appetite at all. So I kind of think maybe I don't know what was going on. I was fighting something that I didn't really know. We decided to cave and buy a pair of pants in town on our way south because I was concerned that, uh, you know, I could be exposed to way too cold of temperatures. My visa was, we all kind of take turns paying for things depending on whose visa is most accessible and who likes to lie most about where their visa is. And it was Ted, Ted, uh, Ryan and I were looking through pants. He's like, yeah, these are good. Let's, let's pick these up. $60 on the price tag. Yeah. Who can't afford 60 bucks for a nice pair of warm pants? Give them to Ted. Go get my stuff on. Ted makes a quick comment. Jeez, this is a receipt to keep. And I, I just look at him shrug. I don't know what the heck he's talking about. I think Gucci here is buying $300 <laughs> pants. 50 kilometers later, we get, we get to camp. I'm putting them on and you make a remark about the price. Yes, I don't remember what I said. Something to the effect of, uh, I was I was yeah, commenting on the style. Not only are they warm, they're brand. They're what they were like Under Armour. Under Armour so that's a name brand, and they're a super sweet uh, camo motif. Yeah. So I was like, oh man, Fins fuck, those are worth every every bit of those three hundred dollars you spent. And I said, what? <laughs> every bit of how much? <laughs> you could have bought. You're kidding. Five pairs at sixty bucks. <laughs> I was I couldn't believe it, and now here we are, fifty kilometers south of, of of the store. The tags are ripped off and thrown in the garbage. I'm wearing the pants. The pockets are already full of sticks, and now I got to eat a pair of three hundred dollar pants that I could go pick up a Canadian Tire for fifty bucks. Uh, 
the I, next 24 hours, you're thinking of ways how you're going to tell your yeah, wife. Yeah, I was thinking how I'm going to tell my wife what I can sell, yeah. what, how many bike parts I can sell. I know I, I have an old Durace <laughs> crank from the 60s. Probably get 50 bucks for that. <laughs> Jen will never know. Well, and, needless to say, they're a fine, fine set of threads. And then we were happy. We, we got we, we returned them at a at a different town in Moosonee, and they were like, "This is these never should have been three hundred dollars. You guys are crazy. Why would you pay that?" I'm like, "Talk to the American." <laughs> he thought it was. He said three hundred Canadian, and he thought that was only fifty bucks US. Yeah, I'm like, "Oh, what a steal! I'm gonna buy two pair." Uh, um. Do the road workers think that you're insane? So we got dumped on with snow. We're riding through on day five and six through two days of road clearing. <sighs> we see a lot of people in uh, heavy machinery moving snow. Do they think we're insane? Yeah, most of them pretty well do. Yeah, they all think we're nuts. They don't like, I think it comes from the indigenous culture being like, like up until like the 1970s, living like they many of them didn't have running water and they lived in tents even where in all the communities we were in there's still some people living in tent frames in those towns it's so cold. with with in the cold with just a, a barrel wood stove no running water and that's where they live we, we didn't see them because we didn't get to everyone get to every single street but they're there so i think that they've suffered for so long that they look at us and go why would you yeah. do that to yourself like, so no, the concept of recreating for fun that's is right. totally it's not, barren. They're not there yet. All right, yeah. all right. Makes sense. Well, hopefully we inspired. Yeah, there was a whole lot of inquisitive looks and, and photos being taken as we went by these, you know, seven-ton machines. Um, what do you think the bikes weigh in at, fully loaded? Mine, around 80-85. Yeah, same thing. Did anyone point at a bike on a scale? I put, on a bike up, I put my bike on the scale when I had it more or less loaded up with... What I thought, maybe a few things less, and it was 85. Dang. So it was probably more than that. It's yeah, there was one 90. day Ryan and I were trying to put it in a truck, and Ryan is roughly seven times stronger than I am. <laughs> and it crushed me. I could not do it. So, oh yeah. And I think the heaviest bike award goes to the camera gear. Bats, Batman. I think, including the camera gear, my bike was probably around 100 pounds, yeah. give or take a few. Plus that booty I had to carry around. <laughs> Mad booty. Uh, how long does it take to set up and disassemble camp? Pretty well one hour from when you decide to say, okay, boom, we're breaking down or boom, we're setting up. Yeah. And that's moving pretty efficiently. Yeah. Ted, man, I got to give you, you know, give you props. You're pretty good in the tent. You're the tent guy. You did well, especially packing up in the morning. Till final day. Yeah. It's like, let's burn all my stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just trying to take a page out of Buck's book. Yeah. Oh, man. I was so good for so long. Yeah, so we're operating in very small, closed quarters. In the center of the room, we have a wood stove that is piping hot heat sometimes. So it's a game of trying not to touch the damn thing. And then in the morning, you're trying to defrost all your clothes that are covered with frozen evaporation, uh, uh, respiration. I was so good at not burning my stuff. And then the final day, I was just a freaking mess. You put a candle up inside that sleeping bag ears now. Say it again? You can put a candle up inside that sleeping bag through the hole. A cantaloupe. I can uh, also look for ways to reimburse Ryan for burning his stove uh, <laughs> pot lid. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, oh, man. Anyway. I've been there, buddy. I've been there. What would you have not taken that you took? Ooh. Ooh, I'll start down the line because i got to think about that. I, I, yeah, I 100 pounds of gear. Ten cameras. <laughs> well, this trip I only brought two cameras. What would I have taken? Uh, I think, yeah, 
what would I have not taken? I used absolutely everything I had taken. Had I the only thing that I brought extra that I did not use was two extra camera lenses. But if I did not bring them, Murphy's Law would say that one of my camera lenses on one of the cameras sure. would have broken. So I needed them. And Good answer. Everything else I absolutely used. Right guy. Yeah, I think I had one extra fairly thin synthetic jacket that I probably didn't need. But I mean, it was a, a bonus. Um, you know, you never know when you're going to totally wet something out from sweating and that you might need an extra dry piece. So I was glad I had it. And you never know what the crow is going to ask for. Yeah. Buck so, or the crow? The crow. So if you leave anything out, <laughs> I'll take crow. it. So for me, it was the pants I'm wearing right now. These Fall Raven, um, really great pants that I love. They've been my best pants I've ever had for all of my bush endeavors. I've taken them in every trip I've ever been on in the summer and the winter in the last seven years. Uh, I love them, but they were too hot to ride in. And they're only windproof, so they're not really warm enough to be standing around in all day. So uh, too hot to ride in and too cold to camp in. Yeah, so, <laughs> so, the so they really, I, I, this is the first trip I found their <laughs> limit. I found their limit finally. So I wouldn't have taken these Fall Raven pants. I would have switched them out for a pair of Marmot uh, pants that I have that I chose. It was between these and those, and I took the wrong ones. Good answer. It is wild. All said and done, when your bikes weigh 85 to 100 pounds, that... I think we could probably each go through and name every single part on the bike we brought, every yeah. single thing we brought, you know, each tube, you know, yeah, how many sure. cookies you brought, you know, how many socks you brought. So for me, it was an extra pair of socks. Otherwise, it was just like boom, 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 boom. Nice. Not an extra single extra thing, I think. Um, questions for the internet is fun. Questions for the, and we'll, we'll wrap this up here shortly just because it is Valentine's Day Eve and I was had a buck... No one here has seen their spouses. Suckers. Um, if you could fit, so so hinging off that, if you could fit any single vice onto the bike that you knew wasn't going to take up any space and wasn't going to weigh anything, what is one vice that you really wanted to bring on this trip or thing? Uh, my and vice is a bad word because I want either beer, a book, or a salad, and those three things aren't really vices. Yeah, I don't know. Um, Would it be weird if I brought a salad? <laughs> yeah, first night setting up, be like, "Who wants yeah. some romaine? Yeah. <laughs> Iceberg, anyone?" Like, Who invited the first one? Yeah. <laughs> no, I think the only thing I actually would have brought had I had the room for it would have been my one-piece down suit. That's literally the only thing I'm used to doing without, uh, like, vice type of luxuries uh, in my normal day-to-day outdoor endeavors. So I'm. I'm really okay with going on trips with no alcohol and no special food. So I would have brought my one-piece Canada Goose Down uh, suit. That would have been choice. Um, I've got like a about a hundred-pound Malamute named Sunto. I would have brought him. I think he would have he would have loved it. He would have been a great mascot. He would have been fun around camp. But uh, he, I mean, if I brought him, my bike would have weighed two hundred pounds. So that would have been tough. I think I probably would have brought a book. Of some sort, if I could have, and I'm not, I'm not much of a reader. I go through waves where I read a lot, and I go through waves where I don't read a lot. But there's a lot, you know. Normally, before at home when I go to bed, I usually I read or I do something that winds my brain down. And when there's absolutely nothing to do in camp, I have a hard time falling asleep just laying down and going to sleep. And I think a book would have really helped, kind of soothe that. Yeah, I'd do book. Wicked. Um, the last question was. Are we at each other's nerves now having spent two weeks nonstop together? So I do not think so. 
I, I've, I've made it public before. Ryan and Eric know each other pretty well, uh, better than all everyone else combined. So the two of them get to bicker a little bit. They know each other so that they, they squawk and squabble a little bit, uh, says the crow. Um, so, no, I don't think we're at each other's throats at all. I think had this trip gone 60 days, sure. Uh, but 10, 12 days? No, no sweat. That's my opinion. Yeah, I mean, if we had been, you know, marooned on Antarctica for three years, I think <laughs> things could have been a bit different, but it was cake. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with both of them with that. It, um, you know, anytime you take four somewhat dominant personalities and you put them together in a, yeah, but anytime you take four elite dominant personalities and put them together, you're going to have clashes in some sort and just coming up through competitive sport and, and whatnot and being an arborist, I'm, I'm used to seeing and, and dealing with that. And for me, I'm a very honest person. So if somebody's bugging me, I have no problem telling them that. And I would expect the same in return. And I have no problem with somebody telling me that I'm agitating them. Like, cause I'll, I'll adjust. I might not like it at the time, but I respect it. And I'm much rather than be honest than, than not. And then hold a grudge or get grumpy or something like that. Like I'm just, be out with it right wicked i think my answer would be that we spent most of the day singing rapping punning <laughs> coming coming up with any variety of names that rhyme with ted all right ted rhymes uh well we've got Everyone's favorite band, Ted Le- Ted Zeppelin. Uh, the other second favorite band, uh, right said Ted. What about the Grateful Ted? Yeah, well, that's the Grateful Ted. We've also got Ted Bungie, <laughs> notorious killer, who was very. We needed many Ted Bungies on this trip. We were always asking for them. We were trading them back and forth. The notorious Ted. Yep. We have so many. Um, we can talk about uh, you know, Ted talks. Illicit. Uh, Oh, yeah. TEDs that people take to boost their performance. <laughs> so that's just scratching the surface. That's the scratching test. the surface. That was literally 10 days of that. And then, you know, we finished up the drive, an eight hour drive from Northern Ontario back to Buck's house right now. And I think we had four minutes of silence. So another yeah. example of just nonstop banter, camaraderie, good times. Yeah. I think it was freaking awesome. Yeah, it was sweet. So, yeah, Wicked, it's uh, three and a half hours shy of Valentine's Day, so... We love you, babies. Gentlemen, I bid you farewell. I I offer you thanks. Thanks for having me on this foolish, crazy adventure. Thanks, Tedward. Endeavor. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Beauty. Hey everybody, thanks very much for listening. Once again, I want to take a quick moment to appreciate Strava for supporting today's King of the Ride podcast. If you enjoyed this episode where we jumped headlong into our trip to the Great White North in the James Bay Descent, I know you'll enjoy Strava's new podcast, Athletes Unfiltered. Featuring normal athletes, they're good, inspiring people, daring enough to share their journey day after day. They are real people, not afraid to be vulnerable, probably a lot like you, they are what makes Strava different. Folks, that is it for me. Thanks again for listening. Until the next time, please be sure to enjoy the ride.